0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of the Weird Tales Podcast. My name is Tycho Alhambra. Thank you for listening. I'm going to tell you that it is such a relief to record this episode because, number one, I just finished recording an audiobook uh, in which I had to like actually like take care and watch everything and make sure I'm doing everything perfectly. And it was a level of focus in the work that just doesn't go into the podcast and I was just so hyper, like locked in on what I was doing and how, like making sure I pronounce every word properly and going back and repeating, like re- basically reading the whole thing twice. And it was just, <laughs> it was an experience. Let's say that. But now I'm back at my rinky dink podcast. That is more of a, I don't know. I was going to say it's a vanity project, except it's not a lot of people really like it. So, um, uh, thank you. Thank you all for listening. Thank you for putting up with my horrible readings of, of sometimes really stupid stories. Um, this one is not really stupid. I actually uh, kind of like this one. And um, the uh, next week, I think it's next week, I'm pretty sure it's next week, uh, will be 4th of February. Uh, I've got my stories all picked out. We're going to do that again. And we're also coming up on the two-year anniversary of doing one show every week and not missing a single episode. Which is going to be a whole woohoo moment. Except no one else is going to do that except me. And maybe my, my wife will be proud of me. But, okay. Uh, Alright, let's, uh, thank you all for listening. I really appreciate it. Thank you for coming along on this journey with me. Um, I really appreciate everyone who takes the time to put a rating and a review on iTunes. I just got two, two reviews up this week. Uh, and they were both very nice and, and spoke very highly of my stupid, stupid show that I make with a broken blue snowball microphone and a pop blocker made of Legos in a back room of my apartment right next to a window where sometimes there's a dog barking and sometimes there's leaf blowers. And a train goes through every hour and blows its horn to kingdom come. So thank you all so much for listening. Uh, I really appreciate it. Uh, And um, on with the show. The Abyss by Robert W. Lowndes. We took Graf Norden's body out into the November night, under the stars that burned with a brightness terrible to behold, and drove madly, wildly up the mountain road. The body had to be destroyed because of the eyes that would not close, but seemed to be staring at some object behind the observer. The body that was entirely drained of blood, without the slightest trace of a wound. The body whose flesh was covered with Abhorrent, luminous markings, designs that shifted and changed form before one's eyes. We wedged what had been Graf Norden tightly behind the wheel, put a makeshift fuse in the gas tank, lit it, then shoved the car over the side of the road where it plummeted down to the main highway, a flaming meteor. Not until the next day did we realize we had all been under Doreen's spell. Even I had forgotten. How else could we have rushed out so eagerly, leaving him to gloat over his triumph? From that terrible moment when the lights came on again and we saw the thing that had a moment before been Graf Norden, we were as shadowy, indistinct figures rushing through a dream. All was forgotten save the unspoken commands upon us as we watched the blazing car strike the pavement below, observed its demolition, then tramped dully each to his own home. When the next day, a partial memory returned to us and we sought Doreen, he was gone. And because we valued our freedom, we did not tell anyone what had happened, nor tried to discover whence Doreen had vanished. We wanted only to forget. I think I might possibly have forgotten, had I not looked into the Song of Iste again. With the others, there had been a growing tendency to treat it all as illusion, but I cannot... I have learned a small part of reality. For it is one thing to read of books like the Necronomicon, the Book of Ibon, or the Song of Iste, but it is quite different when one's own experience confirms some of the dread things related therein. Many have read excerpts from the Necronomicon, yet are reassured by the thought that Hazred was mad. What if they were to discover that, far from being mad, Abdul Hazred was so terribly sane "'that others dubbed him mad simply because they could not bear the burden of the facts he uncovered. "'Of such truths I found one paragraph in the Song of Este, and have not read farther. "'The dark volume, along with Norden's other books, is still on my shelves. "'I have not burned it, but I do not think that I shall read more. "'But let me tell you of Doreen and Graf Norden for around these two lie the reasons for my reluctance of the further pursuit of my studies. I met Graf Norden at Darwich University in Dr. Held's class in medieval and early Renaissance history, which was more a study of obscure thought and often outright occultism. Norden was greatly interested. He had done quite a bit of exploring into the occult. In particular, was he fascinated by the writings and records of a family of adepts named Durka, who traced their ancestry back to the pre-glacial days. They, the Durkas, had translated the Song of Iste from its legendary form into the three great languages of the Don cultures, then into the Greek, Latin, Arabic, and finally Elizabethan English. I told Norden that I deplored the blind contempt in which the world holds the occult, but had never explored the subject very deeply. I was content to be a spectator, letting my imagination drift at will upon the many currents in this dark river skimming over the surface was enough for me. Seldom did I take occasional plunges into the deeps. As a poet and dreamer, I was careful not to lose myself in the blackness of the pools where I disported. One could always emerge to find a calm blue sky and a world that thought nothing of these realities. With Norden it was different. He was already beginning to have doubts, he told me. It was not an easy road to travel. There were hideous dangers hidden all along the way, often so that the wayfarer was not aware of them until too late. Earthmen were not very far along the path of evolution, still very young, their lack of knowledge as a race told heavily against such few of their number who sought to traverse unknown roads. He spoke of messengers from beyond, and made references to obscure passages in the Necronomicon and the Song of Iste. He spoke of alien beings, entities terribly inhuman, Impossible of measurement by any human yardstick, or to be combated effectively by mankind, Doreen came into the picture at about this time. He walked into the classroom one day during the course of a lecture. Later, Dr. Held introduced him as a new member of the class coming from abroad. There was something about Doreen that challenged my interest at once. I could not determine of what race or nationality he might be. He was very close to being beautiful, his every movement being of grace and rhythm yet in no way could he be considered effeminate. He was, in a word, superb. That the majority of us avoided him troubled him not at all. For my part, he did not seem genuine, but with the others, it was probably his utter lack of emotion. There was, for example, the time in the lab when a test tube burst in his face, driving several splinters deep into the skin. He showed not the slightest sign of discomfort, waved aside all expressions of solicitude on the part of some of the girls, and proceeded to go on with his experiment as soon as the medico had finished with him. The final act started when we were dealing with hypnotism one afternoon, and were discussing the practical possibilities of the subject, following up the Rhine experiments and others. Colby presented a most ingenious argument against it, ridiculed the association of experiments in thought transference or telepathy with hypnotism, and arrived at a final conclusion that hypnotism, outside of mechanical means of induction, was impossible. It was at this point that Doreen spoke up. What he said I cannot now recall, but it ended in a direct challenge for Doreen to prove his statements. Norden said nothing during the course of this debate. He appeared somewhat pale and was, I noticed, trying to flash a warning sign to Colby. My frank opinion now is that Doreen had planned evoking this challenge. At the time, however, it seemed spontaneous enough. There were five of us over at Norden's place that night. Granville, Calmers, Colby, Norden, and myself Norden was smoking endless cigarettes, gnawing his nails, and muttering to himself, "I suspected something irregular was up, but what I had no idea." Then Doreen came in, and the conversation, such as it had been, ended. Colby repeated his challenge, saying he had brought along the others as witnesses to insure against being tricked by stage devices. No mirrors, lights, or any other mechanical means of inducting hypnosis would be permitted. It must be entirely a matter of wills. Doreen nodded, drew the shade, then turned, directing his gaze at Colby. We watched, expecting him to make motions with his hands and pronounce commands. He did neither. He fixed his eyes upon Colby, and the latter stiffened as if struck by lightning. Then, I staring blankly ahead of him, he rose slowly, standing on the narrow strip of black that ran diagonally through the center of the rug. My mind ran back to the day I caught Norden in the act of destroying some papers and apparatus, the latter which had been constructed with such assistance as I had been able to give over a period of several months. His eyes were terrible, and I could see doubt in them. Not long after this event, Doreen had made his appearance. Could there have been a connection, I wondered? My reverie was broken abruptly by the sound of Doreen's voice commanding Colby to speak, telling us where he was and what he saw around him. When Colby obeyed, it was as if his voice came to us from a distance. He was standing, he said, on a narrow bridgeway overlooking a frightful abyss, so vast and deep that he could discern neither floor nor boundary. Behind him this bridgeway stretched until it was lost in a bluish haze. Ahead it ran toward what appeared to be a plateau. He hesitated to move because of the narrowness of the path, yet realized that he must make for the plateau before the very sight of the depths below him made him lose his balance. He felt strangely heavy, and speaking was an effort. As Colby's voice ceased, we all gazed in fascination at the little strip of black in the blue rug. This, then, was the bridge over the abyss. But what could correspond to the illusion of depth? Why did his voice seem so far away? Why did he feel heavy? The plateau must be the workbench at the other end of the room. The rug ran up to a sort of dais upon which was set Norton's table, the surface of this being some seven feet above the floor. Colby now began to walk slowly down the black swath, moving as if with extreme caution, looking like a slow-motion camera shot. His limbs appeared weighted. He was breathing rapidly. Doreen now bade him halt and look down into the abyss carefully, telling us what he saw there. At this we again examined the rug as if we had never seen it before, and did not know that it was entirely without decoration save for that single black strip upon which Colby now stood. His voice came to us again. He said at first that he saw nothing in the abyss below him. Then he gasped, swayed, and almost lost his balance. We could see the sweat standing out on his brow and neck, soaking his blue shirt. "There were things in the abyss," he said in hoarse tones great shapes that were like blobs of utter blackness, yet which he knew to be alive. From the central masses of their beings he could see them shoot forth incredibly long filamentine tentacles. They moved themselves forward and backward, horizontally, but could not move vertically, it seemed. They were, he thought, nothing but living shadows. But the things were not all on the same plane. True, their movements were only horizontal in relation to their position— but some were parallel to him and some diagonal. Far away he could see things perpendicular to him. There appeared now to be a great deal more of the things than he had thought. The first ones he had seen were far below, unaware of his presence, but these sensed him and were trying to reach him. He was moving faster now, he said, but to us he was still walking in slow motion. I glanced sidewise at Norden. He, too, was sweating profusely. He arose now and went over to Doreen, speaking in low tones so that none of us could hear. I knew that he was referring to Colby, and that Doreen was refusing whatever it was Norden demanded. Then Doreen was forgotten momentarily as Colby's voice came to us again, quivering with fright. The things were reaching out for him. They rose and fell on all sides, some far away, some hideously close. None had found the exact plane upon which he could be captured. The darting tentacles had not touched him. But all of the beings now sensed his presence, he was sure, and he feared that perhaps they could alter their planes at will, although it appeared that they must do so blindly, seemingly like two-dimensional beings. The tentacles darting at him were threads of utter darkness. A terrible suspicion arose in me as I recalled some of the earlier conversations with Norden and remembered certain passages from the Song of Iste. I tried to rise, but my limbs were powerless. I could only sit helplessly and watch. Norden was still speaking with Doreen, and I saw that he was now very pale. He seemed to shrink away. Then he turned and went over to a cabinet, took out some object, and came to the strip of rug upon which Colby was standing. Norden nodded to Doreen, and now I saw what it was he held in his hand. A polyhedron of glassy appearance. There was in it, however, a glow that startled me. Desperately I tried to remember the significance of it, for I knew— But my thoughts were being short-circuited, it seemed, and when Doreen's eyes rested upon me, the very room seemed to stagger. Again, Colby's voice came through, this time despairingly. He was afraid he would never reach the plateau. Actually, he was about a yard and a half away from the end of the black strip and the dais upon which stood Norden's workbench. The things, said Colby, were close now. A mass of thread-like tentacles had just missed him. Now Norden's voice came to us. It too, seemingly far away, he called my name. This was more he said than mere hypnotism. It was- but then his voice faded, and I felt the power of Doreen blanking out the sound of his words. Now and then, I would hear a sentence or a few disjointed words, but from this, I managed to get an inkling of what was going on. This was not mere hypnotism, but actually transdimensional journeying. We just imagined we saw Norden and Colby standing on the rug. Or perhaps it was through Doreen's influence. The nameless dimension was the habitat of these shadow beings. The abyss and the bridge upon which the two stood were illusions created by Doreen. When that which Doreen had planned was complete, our minds would be probed and our memories treated so that we were called no more than Doreen wished us to remember. He, Doreen, was a being of incredible power who was using Colby and the rest of us for a nameless purpose. Norden had succeeded in forcing an agreement upon Doreen, one which he would have to keep. As a result, if the two could reach the plateau before the shadow beings touched them, all would be well. If not, Norden did not specify but indicated that they were being hunted as men hunt game. The polyhedron contained an element repulsive to the things. He was but a little behind Colby. We could see him aiming with the polyhedron. Colby spoke again, telling us that Norden had materialized behind him and had brought some sort of weapon with which the things could be held off. Then Norden called my name, asking me to take care of his belongings if he did not return, telling me to look up the Adumbrali in the Song of Iste. Slowly, he and Colby made their way toward the dais and the table. Colby was but a few steps ahead of Norden. Now he climbed upon the dais and, with the other's help, made his way onto the bench. He tried to assist Norden, but as the latter mounted the dais, he stiffened suddenly and the polyhedron fell from his hands. Frantically, he tried to draw himself up, but he was being forced backwards, and I knew that he had lost. There came to us a single cry of anguish. Then the lights in the room faded and went out. Whatever spell had been upon us now was removed. We rushed about like madmen, trying to find Norden, Colby, and the light switch. Then suddenly the lights were on again, and we saw Colby sitting dazedly on the bench while Norden lay on the floor. Calmers bent over the body in an effort to resuscitate him, but when he saw the condition of Norden's remains, he became so hysterical that we had to knock him cold in order to quiet him. Colby followed us mechanically, apparently unaware of what was happening. We took Graf Norden's body out into the November night and destroyed it by fire, telling Colby later that he had apparently suffered a heart attack while driving up the mountain road. The car had gone over and his body was almost completely destroyed in the Holocaust. Later, Colmers, Granville, and I met in an effort to rationalize what we had seen and heard. Colmers had been all right after he came around, had helped us with our grisly errand up the mountain road. Neither, I found, had heard Norden's voice after he had joined Colby in the supposed hypnotic state. So, it was as I thought. Doreen's power had blanked out the sound of Norden's voice for them completely. Nor did they recall seeing any object in Norden's hand. But in less than a week, even these memories had faded from them. They fully believed that Norden had died in an accident after an unsuccessful attempt on the part of Doreen to hypnotize Colby. Prior to this, their explanation had been that Doreen had killed Norden for reasons unknown, and that we had been his unwitting accomplices. The hypnotic experiment had been a blind to gather us all together and provide a means of disposing of the body. That Doreen had been able to hypnotize us, they did not doubt then. The illusion of the abyss, they said, was just a cruel joke. It is no use telling them what I learned a few days later, what I learned from Norden's notes which explained Doreen's arrival, or to quote sections from the Song of Iste to them. Yet... I must set these things down. In that accursed book is a section dealing with an utterly alien race of entities known as the Adumbrali. And these be none other than the Adumbrali, the living shadows, beings of incredible power and malignancy which dwell without the veils of space and time such as we know it. Their sport it is to import into their realm the inhabitants of other dimensions upon whom they practice horrid pranks and manifold illusions but more dreadful than these are the Seekers which they send out into other worlds and dimensions, beings of incredible power which they themselves have created and guised in the form of those who dwell within whatever dimension or upon whichever worlds where these Seekers be sent. These Seekers can be detected only by the Adept, to whose trained eyes their too-perfectness of form and movement, their strangeness and aura of alienage and power, is a sure sign. The sage Jalkanen tells of one of these Seekers, who deluded seven priests of Nyagagwa into challenging it to a duel of the hypnotic arts. He further tells how two of these were trapped and delivered to the Adumbrelai, their bodies being returned when the Shadow Things had done with them. Most curious of all was the condition of the corpses, being entirely drained of all fluid, yet showing no trace of a wound, even the most slight. But the crowning horror was the eyes, which could not be closed, appearing to stare restlessly outward beyond the observer and the strangely luminous markings on the dead flesh, curious designs which appeared to move and change form before the eyes of the beholder. Alright, so that was The Abyss by Robert W. Lowndes. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, Thank you for coming along with me as on on these... Little literary expeditions as we do every week. Uh, I am uh, very grateful to each and every one of you who listens. It, it really means a lot to me to see the, the download numbers and see that people are enjoying the show and to read the reviews and the ratings. we got 41 ratings. I'm at four and a half stars. Thank you all so very much. It would be five stars, but that one guy, that one guy, um, thank you all so much. I really, really appreciate it. Uh, If you want to email me, you can email me at theweirdtalespodcast at gmail.com. If you want to tweet at me, you can uh, tweet at me at uh, weirdtalespod. The audio dramas that I appear in are are coming very soon, I promise. And I will make sure to mention them here as soon as they are available and ready to go. And um, I think that's it. So thank you all for listening. Next week starts fourth week. What's today? Today is the twenty-fifth. Yeah. So next week, uh, next week starts Fourth Wall February, uh, and uh, we're gonna have a lot of fun with that. And other than that, uh, I hope you have a great week, and I will see you next time. Da 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 da. Here's the bloops! As a poet and dreamer, I was careful not to lose myself in the blackness of the pools where I disported. One could always emerge to find a calm blue sky and a world that thought nothing of these realities. I don't okay. I don't know what that means, but there it is. All right, and that was the abyss by uh, someone whose name I don't remember. Something something Landis, Lounds. Something something Lounds. What was his name? I gotta click all the way back to the beginning of the story. Robert W. Lounded.